One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're talking about the Valve game that started it all. It started your favorite esports game. It started your favorite goofy shoot 'em up push-the-cart game. It started so many other different source engine games that we see today, whether it's on YouTube, whether you're playing with friends. And of course, I'm talking about good old Half-Life. This game is interesting. It's not just the success it had as a video game, the impact it had on first-person shooters, but it was also the beginning for Valve and Gabe Newell and eventually Steam and all these other great products that we've gotten. This kind of talks a lot about, in this episode, we're going to talk a lot about the path, you know, where they kind of started Valve, where they left Microsoft, where they came up with the concepts for this game, but there's just so much that's come from Half-Life, even beyond in the, the specific first-person shooter realm. Absolutely. And Valve as a company, you know, always having this mentality of having this basically gold source they build that is used throughout all the games and modding and communities they have. They even brought us, you know, silly games like Gary's Mod, where all of these assets are used to build out things like Trouble in Terrorist Town or Murder Town or just Gmod Murder, I think it's called. So you have just all these crazy, wacky things that have come from a modding community that really gives the plug to other companies to say, hey, send out those dev tools, open it up to your community and see what they can create. Absolutely. And so similar to that in um, another episode that we did, Doom, and you'll see in this episode as well that they were inspired a lot by id Software. So I can feel the comparison between those two things, just allowing modders and that community to just have their hands on a game like this. Half-Life is a first-person shooter game developed by Valve and published by Sierra Studios for Windows in 1998. It was Valve's debut product and the first game in the Half-Life series. Players assume the role of Gordon Freeman, a scientist who must escape the Black Mesa research facility after it is invaded by aliens. The core gameplay consists of fighting alien and human enemies with a variety of weapons and solving puzzles. Unlike many other games at the time, the player has almost uninterrupted control of the player character, and the story is told mostly through scripted sequences seen through his eyes. Valve co-founder Gabe Newell said the team were disappointed with the lack of exploration in the FPS genre and aimed to create an immersive world rather than a, quote, shooting gallery. They developed using Gold Source, a heavily modded version of the Quake engine 
licensed from id software science fiction novelist mark laidlaw was hired to shape the story and assist design half-life received acclaim for its graphics realistic gameplay and seamless narrative it won over 50 pc game of the year awards and is considered one of the most influential fps games and one of the best video games ever made by 2008 it had sold over 9 million copies it was followed by the expansion packs Opposing Force in 99 and Blue Shift in 01, developed by Gearbox Software. It was ported to the PlayStation 2 in 2001, along with another expansion, Half-Life Decay, and to Mac OS and Linux in 2013. Valve ported Half-Life to its Source engine in 2004, while a third-party remake, Black Mesa, was released in 2020. Half-Life inspired numerous fan-made mods, some of which became standalone games, such as Counter-Strike, Day of Defeat, and Seven Co-op. The story continued with Half-Life 2 in 2004, followed by Half-Life 2 Episode 1 in 06, Episode 2 in 07, and Down the Street and Half-Life Alex in 2020. And, to never be revealed, never determined... No Half-Life 3, unfortunately. Whoa, now let's hold it up, Derek. Now, we do have a surprise at the end of this episode. We do have the official release date for Half-Life 3. Continue all the way to the end, and we got it for you. <laughs> so Valve started as a dream for two Microsoft employees, Mike Harrington and Gabe Newell. Newell was a Harvard dropout who was simply spending too much time hanging out with his brother who worked at Microsoft. Microsoft employee Steve Ballmer told Newell that if he's going to be spending so much time at Microsoft, he needs to do something there and hired him. From there, Newell spent 10 years developing the first three versions of Windows before making his decision to leave. Before Newell left Microsoft, he contacted id Software and told them that he would make a port for Windows 95 for free and would give them the source code. John Carmack and John Romero told Newell, you'd probably have more fun working on video games than Windows. And on that note, John Carmack and John Romero, if you haven't listened to the Doom episode, get a full background on those guys. Really interesting stuff. During this time, every Microsoft employee could receive stock in the company. This created 10,000 millionaires within Microsoft. In 1996, Newell and Harrington would sell their stock for millions of dollars. From there, the two would start Valve. Both got the inspiration to start Valve from a former Microsoft employee, Michael Abrash, who left Microsoft to work for id. The pair went to visit Abrash at id to learn everything they could from the studio so they had some idea on how to build a game. And id was less than thrilled about that and didn't really think they'd make it as video game developers. No, because they originally approached them, um, Romero and Carmack, basically saying, hey, like, why don't you come and kind of work with id like kind of hinting at that like you're great developers you know what you're doing you're having fun but wouldn't you have more fun doing games and not just ports for windows or different versions of it so that was really the inkling to start that but with newell and harrington coming together and be like no we're gonna start our own thing it kind of started up that competition thing because they were starting to brainstorm games that were very similar to doom very similar to Quake. So they wanted to be like, that's not what we meant, but, you know, try what you can. <laughs> so when Valve was started, there was really no idea on what game they wanted to design other than a 3D shooter that could explore storytelling in the medium. 
The pair thought that the genre could be improved since shooters of the time were very straightforward. You know, that very shooting gallery of just move forward, shoot, move forward, shoot. And that's kind of all the genre had to offer and really was kind of falling to the wayside or at risk to fall to the wayside because you had these other puzzle games. You had Civ coming, all these other cool games that weren't just this kind of first-person shoot-em-up. Now, what Valve thought was that they wanted to break the mold with a story, which at the time was unconventional. There was very, very loose stories in Quake, Duke Nukem, and all these other ones that were out there that they wanted to kind of get this rolling. So Newell and Harrington looked to the Doom and Quake modding community when it came to hiring developers for Valve. They wanted devs who were passionate about what they did, and the modding community was the place to find just that. Despite this, the first two employees they hired were names given to them by it, Steve Bond and John Guthrie. Bond and Guthrie thought this offer, unfortunately, was a joke, so they actually ignored it a while and finally were like, yeah, what do you want? And they're like, hey, we'd love to have you on as devs at our new company. It's like, <laughs> they're like, oh, okay, cool. And so Newell and Harrington would also start to scalp some devs from other companies to get to work at Valve, kind of giving that promise of like, freedom, make what you want. Like, we're going to make the best games. And they're not wrong. They're not right, but they're not wrong. Yeah, definitely a questionable move after they had been getting advice from id Software mm-hmm. to begin with. But hey, you know, free market. The studio was able to get their hands on id Software's Quake engine with the help of a brash. Development for the game was rocky at the start. At one point, the studio wasn't even sure that they were going to be able to make the characters talk which would obviously be bad for a story game. Yes, and a game that's trying to become the modern era game that's not just blocky moving characters. Valve would then start to modify the engine, and the final product was known as the Gold Source. This way they could do everything in the game that the Quake engine was not able to do. Valve faced a big issue when it came to publishing the game since, as we previously stated, their idea for a story-driven game was still out of the realm of the norm for shooters at the time. One publisher ended the meeting early when Valve showed them that they were going to use a skeletal animation system. Luckily, Newell had an in with Sierra Entertainment. Newell's friend knew the founder of Sierra, Ken Williams, and suggested that they pitch the game to him. Though Newell was skeptical that Williams would be on board, he actually was. And Williams had recently failed getting the publishing rights for Doom by purchasing it, so he needed to make up for that and saw Valve as the perfect opportunity. The day they met with Williams, it almost didn't happen due to a snowstorm in Seattle. Basically like a Hallmark movie. (laughs) It's like, oh, I need to go out and meet him, but the snow, it's too much. (laughs) And then they'll never get the meeting again. Could never be rescheduled. the only time, the only time they can do it. (laughs) Williams was the only one in the Sierra office that day just for the meeting. See, it is a Hallmark movie. (laughs) He was sold on publishing the game 20 minutes into the meeting with the game set to release in 1997. Williams started pitching to Valve why they should work with Sierra by the end of the meeting, actually. So he was the one kind of trying to convince them. to See, we had the climax of the movie where they had the meeting. And now we have the conclusion where it's like the flipper switcheroo. Hallmark ending. And unfortunately, Williams wouldn't be at the company too much longer, and eventually Scott Lynch took over the Valve deal. So the bad ending for the Hallmark movie. (laughs) But with a publisher, Valve set out to create the first iteration of Half-Life 
which was called Quiver. The goal was to release the game as quickly as possible. This was advice directly from John Carmack that's stating that if they were to take too long developing the game, they'd just run out of money. They were told to just ship something. It doesn't have to be a AAA title, you just gotta get a game out there. Not the greatest advice, but understandable advice. Like, I get it. Like, you gotta get it out there to make the money back. You can't just, like, sit on, like, especially a creative project, you can't sit on it forever. You're gonna run out of time or money or effort on it. But at the same time, you can't just go, and, you know, just write something up, slap it into something, put it out there, you know, just something the, to be good. The first one probably has a lot to do with that, right? If yeah. you've already done a few other games that weren't the greatest, maybe, you know, you get a little bit more money coming your way, a little more experience. But I could see where a passion project like Half-Life could end up just taking way too much time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it could have been a 10-year, like you said, passion development project if it has to be perfect. Half-Life had several innovations, one of which was having those characters' mouth actually being able to move as they spoke. It wasn't an easy task, but developers Ken Birdwell and Kelly Bailey were able to figure out how to make it work. Birdwell was also able to add more life into the characters by creating those skeletal animations, which gave characters digital bones and joints, making them seem more lifelike and actually saving memory space. Valve was also able to give NPCs and enemies the ability to work together, forming teams when in combat. Valve also wanted every action the player made to have a reaction to it, whether it was firing a gun and having enemies and NPCs hear it, or showing bullet holes in the walls they fired at. Enemies would also start to run away from the player the more and more the player killed their friends. Half-Life's AI were heavily influenced by 007 Goldeneye, classic title, for the N64. After playing it, they felt that they had to redo a lot of their AI systems and get that, uh, that James Bond uh, je, ne sais, je ne sais quoi to get it going. And when it came to creating Gordon Freeman, or as the early iterations called him, Ivan the Space Biker, thank God the uh, name did not stick, the studio wanted to immerse the player and make them feel like they were Gordon Freeman and not a biker boy. Freeman is famously a mute character and has never had a line in any of the Half-Life games. Valve felt that adding anything above hearing Freeman breathe would undo making the player feel like they themselves were Mr. Gordon Freeman. And, you know, maybe if you are a space biker, space biker boy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you didn't get that feeling anymore. But for everyone else, probably not a space biker boy. No, I like the shift. I get what they're going for at the beginning of like space biker aliens, like, you know, hard ass Duke Nukem. Yeah. But like changing it to kind of like a scientist, you know, where you get just implemented weapons from around your environment, like a crowbar. It's kind of a cool shift that, again, narrative wise, haven't really seen. Some people call me the space biker. See? Oh, you know what? <laughs> Missed opportunity. Never mind. Change it up. <laughs> Valve would start to show the world Half-Life in May 1997 when they released some screenshots. At E3 97, they would show the first Half-Life trailer to the world. The gaming community would fall in love with what they saw in Half-Life and were ready to play it. And the game quickly became the next big thing. Even after all this, John Carmack was still skeptical about the game and paid very little attention to it. Valve aimed for a November 1997 release to compete with Quake 2. By September 1997, the team found that 
While they had built some innovative aspects in weapons, enemies, and level design, the game was not fun and there was little design cohesion. The company postponed the release and reworked every level. They took a novel approach of assigning a small team to build a prototype level containing every element in the game and then spent a month iterating on the level. When the rest of the team played the level, which designer Ken Birdwell described as Die Hard meets Evil Dead, they agreed to use it as a baseline. The team developed three theories about what made the level fun. First, it had several interesting things happen in it, all triggered by the player rather than a timer, so that the player would set the pace of the level. Second, the level responded to any player action, even for something as simple as adding graphic decals to wall textures to show a bullet impact. And finally, the level warned the player of imminent danger to allow them to avoid it, rather than killing the player with no warning. And that last one, I definitely would agree with for most games too, whether it's like let's say a cliff edge or toxic waste or just like a little signage to like let the player know what's going on because in half-life especially half-life 2 that is a major aspect that you deal with is like toxic waste or any of those things and they kind of give you at the start they they're very on the nose about it but later they give you like hints and i think that makes it better instead of like walking and go why did i die Mm -hmm. like what's the purpose of this and it makes you feel dumb as a player and all three of these are trying to make you feel as gordon freeman and feel like you're smart, and that you know what's going on. To move forward with this unified design, Valve sought a game designer, but found no one suitable. Instead, Valve created the Cabal, initially a group of six individuals from across all departments that worked primarily for six months straight in six-hour meetings four days a week. The Cabal was responsible for all elements of design, including level layouts, key events, enemy designs, narrative, and the introduction of gameplay elements relative to the story. The collaboration proved successful, and once the Cabal had come to decisions on types of gameplay elements that would be needed, many Cabals from other departments most affected by the choice were formed to implement these elements. Membership in the main Cabal rotated since the required commitment created burnout. 1,000% having six-hour meetings all week plus work That's a lot of work, yeah. you know, but it makes sense. We've talked about this in previous episodes as well. When you have someone from each department that can come in and talk about what's necessary, like this will work or like, because you can't just have game designers saying, yeah, 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 put that tree there, put that there. When the programmers are saying that is impossible for us to design, like we cannot write that code for it. So when you have each member, it brings it together. Yeah, it goes back to that Toyota Kaizen type of thinking. Mm -hmm. And... On top of that, there's a lot of research that shows if you have an hour-long business meeting, it's going to be one of your least efficient meeting times. Having a six-hour meeting, I know it sounds really draining, but you don't actually start getting into things until you're pretty deep into a meeting. Usually the first 15 minutes are playing a little bit of catch-up. And then by the time, if you're in an hour-long meeting, those last 15 minutes are typically spent trying to run through a bunch of stuff. So having Mm -hmm. these long meetings... I think was a really smart choice, even with the burnout. Well, and especially like going through each of the cabal members to be able to like communicate what's going on, talk about these things, brainstorm. Otherwise, like you said, in an hour, even a two hour meeting for this type of stuff, it's not enough time. It's just glancing on things. It's a waste of time for a lot of people, but bringing this together made it work. And so the cabal produced a 200 page design document 
detailing nearly every aspect of the game. Within a month of the Cabal's formation, the other team members started detailed game development, and within another month began playtesting through Sierra. The Cabal was intimately involved with playtesting, monitoring the player, but otherwise not interacting. They noted any confusion or inability to solve a game's puzzle and made them into action items to be fixed on the next iteration. Later, with most of the main adjustments made, the team included means to benchmark players' actions, which they then collected and interpreted statistically to fine-tune levels further. Between the Cabal and playtesting, Valve identified and removed parts that proved unenjoyable. Birdwell said that while there were struggles at first, the Cabal approach was critical for Half-Life's success and was reused for Team Fortress 2 from the start. So again, talking about those detailed elements of like being fine-tuning and, and really putting those brains to work on every aspect, it made it work. As the studio pushed forward with it, Valve was in need of a writer for the game. Valve co-founder Gabe Newell was inspired by Stephen King's The Mist for this first Half-Life game, so the studio would bring in award-winning horror writer Mark Laidlaw for the story. Newell and Harrington read a piece by Laidlaw in Wired Magazine about id Software while they were on their way to the id Studio for their original meeting with them. Laidlaw was able to write a story for Half-Life that eases the player into the narrative and overall plot of a horror shooter game with heavy HP Lovecraft undertones. Laidlaw based the opening of the game off of a statement from his biggest influence, Alice Bradley Sheldon, when it came to starting a story, and that was, quote, start from the end and preferably 5,000 feet underground on a dark day and then don't tell them. It's... A co- it, sometimes the quote doesn't make sense, but it's so great. It's basically like start them off so poorly or so like off the wall that like kind of like gets this element, especially like in Half-Life 2, when you start with uh, G-Man on the train just talking to you about, hello, Mr. Freeman, and like going on about these things and you just get off the train and it's just, it's such like an oddity, like what is going on type idea. And like, it really allows the player to think about that thing and start there and like work their way up to that understanding of it and make, again, make the player smart or feel smart that they can understand these things and develop that idea as the story goes on. And a classic epic methodology of writing is you start in the middle of a story, right? Mm -hmm. So like Star Wars starts in the middle of all that stuff that happened. That's why we got prequels and and endings. You know, that's a very common thing going back to classic epics as well. So definitely a, a very good note. A lot of the story was already written by the time Laidlaw had been hired onto Valve. Laidlaw stated that he was more of an enabler for some of the aspects of the story. He came into the studio completely against the idea of using cutscenes. It would push this belief to the end of development, wanting the player to never leave first person. Laidlaw said his contribution was to add, quote, old storytelling tricks to the team's ambitious designs. He goes on to say, I was in awe of the team. It felt to me like I was just borrowing from old standards while they were the ones doing something truly new. Rather than dictate narrative elements from some kind of ivory tower of authorial inspiration, he worked with the team to improvise ideas and was inspired by their experiments. Yeah, so, you know, again, it's tough to find a writer sometimes that 
doesn't want the full hand in the work. And for him, it's like, listen, you guys kind of have the groundwork. I'm just kind of guiding you with that groundwork. Your story's already sounding good. Let's just make it work. Around the time the game was set to release, Newell and Harrington didn't like how the game played or the direction it was going. Newell described the first build as broken, and the studio didn't know what they were doing with it. They felt like the game was just a fancier quake. They decided to pull the plug on their current build of Half-Life and start from scratch. There was a second team at Valve working on another game, but they halted work on that to come in and help with Half-Life. Even with this, though, it only took a few months to create a new playable version of Half-Life, and with it would start testing the game. Sierra would bring in one participant who would play the game for two hours straight. No Valve employee was allowed to speak during the playtest. They just watched and saw what happened with it. If there's crashes, anything like that. Like we talked about the Cabal, them kind of going to that playtesting. This was honestly humbling for Valve. Each playtest would lead to roughly 100 changes made in the game, and there were a total of 200 playtests of Half-Life in total, if we're going on those numbers. About 20,000 changes or so, if you're to go by those averages of what changed each time someone playtested. And we've talked in the past about, I think it was in the Age of Empires episode, where they actually wrote a code, right, to help them work through issues on that game. Yeah. I mean, the amount of changes that you can find within crashing games is immense. I mean, I I think that doing it as much as possible, being thorough, really leads to great games like Half-Life. Well, and it it stops your release from being a buggy mess and getting a 4 out of (laughs) 10. Exactly. Valve was struggling and crunching to release the game on time, and with this, there were many problems. The biggest one is when their visual source-safe source control system exploded, and logs of technical changes from before the final month of development were lost. This happened three months before the game was set to release. The studio then had to scramble to pull fragments of the game off of everyone's computer and make a Frankenstein out of the original build. The studio was able to come together and ship the game regardless of everything that had happened leading up to the release. The last month of development was nothing but crunch to release the game on time since their November release date was the final release date. Supposedly, some people were working 24 hours straight. Gabe Newell and his wife at one point were putting manuals into the game's cases themselves. At the 11th hour, a majority of the studio was finished with their work on the game without really knowing what to do next. And when the studio finally finished the game about a week before its release date, they smashed a pinata that looked like a head crab with a crowbar. After the game was released, Valve actually went on a company-wide no-work retreat to Mexico, so hard work paid off at least for a little bit. They got to take a well-deserved break. (laughs) Oh, yes. Finally got it shipped out like crunch time. I've never really had to deal with crunch time. I've dealt with a little bit working as a reporter on some stuff, but not like this where you're doing 24 hour days for probably multiple days, sleeping at your desk, doing that stuff. But it's pretty wild. All right. So, yeah, they're done. They got the game wrapped. Let's talk about what they did to market it. Obviously, we talked about our E3 trailers and these first bits to really get the game out into the public. But let's jump over to Half-Life Day 1. This was a demo sent to any and all gaming journalists containing an almost complete version of the first 20% of the game. Sent out in September of that year, only a few months before the game was set to release, it had everyone talking about it and hyping the game up. It would quickly find its way online and captivated and excited anyone who downloaded the demo themselves. 
This was when John Carmack finally joined the Half-Life bandwagon. Sort of. When John Romero first got his hands on the demo, he played through it without stopping once. So I get it. They got a little chips in their shoulders. They took their engine. That's a big no-no. You know, they scalped some employees. They learned how to do it. But they're like, you know what? They did pretty well with it. <laughs> I can't, can't lie. Can't lie. Uh, next up, we had another demo, which was Half-Life Uplink, released five months after the game. This demo features the same enemies and weapons, but changes the scenarios, places, and settings that aren't in the base game. And so it contained a lot of those cut levels from Half-Life just to be able to, like, not spoil the game, but play more of it to get that more experience out there. And finally, we had an international tournament from November 19th to November 22nd, 1998. Valve and iGames would hold a Half-Life tournament across 30 locations in the United States and Canada. Winners of this tournament would receive prizes from Logitech. These prizes include an Intel 400 megahertz Pentium 2 computer system with, let me tell you, 128 megs of RAM. Oh, baby. Oh, we're getting up there. And a Voodoo 2 card and an AGP video card with a Logitech capture board, along with mice, game pads, t-shirts, hats, all sorts of Logitech swag bag stuff. So a lot of cool stuff. Very exciting. But let's talk about the real exciting part of Half-Life, which was the gameplay and its influence. Half-Life is a first-person shooter that requires the player to perform combat tasks and puzzle solving to advance through the game. Unlike most of its peers at the time, Half-Life uses scripted sequences such as a Vortigaun ramming down a door to advance major plot points. Compared to most first-person shooters of the time, which relied on cutscene intermissions to detail their plot lines, Half-Life's story is told mostly using scripted sequences, except for one very short cutscene. Keeping the player in control of the first-person viewpoint. In line with this, the player rarely loses the ability to control the player character who never speaks and is never actually seen in the game. The player sees through his eyes for the entire length of the game. Half-Life has no levels. It instead divides the game into chapters, whose titles flash on the screen as the player moves through the game. Progress through the world is continuous, except for short pauses for loading. The game regularly integrates puzzles such as navigating a maze of conveyor belts or using nearby boxes to build a small staircase to the next area the player must travel to. Some puzzles involve using the environment to kill an enemy, like turning a valve to spray hot steam at their enemies. There are a few bosses in the conventional sense, where the player defeats a superior opponent by direct confrontation. Instead, such organisms occasionally define chapters, and the player is generally expected to use the terrain, rather than firepower, to kill the boss. Late in the game, the player receives a long jump module for the HEV suit, which allows the player to increase the horizontal distance and speed of jumps by crouching before jumping. The player must rely on this ability to navigate various platformer-style jumping puzzles in Zen toward the end of the game. For the most part, the player battles through the game alone, but is occasionally assisted by non-player characters, specifically security guards and scientists who help the player. The guards will fight alongside the player, and both guards and scientists can assist in reaching new areas and impart relevant plot information. An array of alien enemies populate the game, including headcrabs, bullsquids, and headcrab zombies. 
The player also faces human opponents, including the Hazardous Environment Combat Unit, or the HECU Marines, and Black Ops Assassins. So there's a lot of stuff in here, and this is, I think, one of the most interesting parts of Half-Life and where it really did set itself apart was just the ability to really interact with your environment. Mm-hmm. You know, breaking windows with the crowbar to get through, but you know, breaking down the vents to climb up, having to jump from desk to desk to avoid water that's electrocuted and you have to turn off a switch to then be able to touch the water safely, you know. They really took what was a shoot, move forward, shoot, move forward, shooter's gallery. They really took that idea and just expanded it into other gaming genres. I totally agree, because you see that idea of mist. You see that idea even of, you know, Doom and of even like Wolfenstein a bit of some of these things and combined it really well. Like, it is a first-person shooter, but it's not. It's a puzzle game with a first-person shooter skin, I would say. It, it, it just, it's so intuitive for the time. And Valve, you know, they've, they've given us very infrequent releases for all of their games. But I'm going to go on record and saying every single Valve game they've put out has pushed the boundaries of the gaming sphere and has added so much to it. I mean, we can even just talk about, obviously, Portal, oh, yeah. as we've talked about before. I mean, it's a whole, whole puzzle thing. Half-Life, Left 4 Dead, Team, even Team Fortress push those boundaries. And we even see, like, not clones, but homages to that in just so many modern games that have taken on those things. Counter-Strike, we're going to talk about in a bit, you know, being a mod, but then getting its own full game, basically launched esports. I mean, it's, it, there's so much to it that this gameplay started at all of saying, we're going to think outside the box. We're going to challenge this. Not only that, we're going to build one of the best engines that can cooperate together between all of our games. Absolutely, man. And it really ties back into what I was trying to convey at the beginning of the episode is this game is obviously great and influential within that genre, but to be able to touch all these other aspects of gaming, really something special that Valve was able to do. Another thing that they brought on someone for, but they wrote a lot themselves, got to give credit where credit's due, is the story. Let's break it down. Physicist Gordon Freeman arrives late for work on his first day at the Black Mesa Research Facility. Sounds very similar, Resident Evil 2. As, as part of an experiment, he pushes an unusual material into a machine called the anti-mass spectrometer for analysis. The spectrometer explodes, creating a resonance cascade that severely damages the facility and opens a portal to another dimension, Zen. Surviving scientists urge Gordon to head to the surface, where he defends himself against hostile Zen creatures and the HECU, a special unit of United States Marines sent to cover up the incident by killing all of the hostile aliens and any Black Mesa personnel they find, Resident Evil 2. (laughs) Heading to the surface, Gordon learns that scientists from the Lambda Complex have found a way to close the portal. Gordon travels to the other end of the facility to assist them. Along the way, he activates a rocket engine test facility to destroy a giant tentacled creature and uses a railway system to reach and launch a satellite rocket. After he is captured by Marines and left for dead in a garbage compactor, he escapes, uh, Star Wars, and makes his way to an older part of the facility. 
There, he discovers Zen specimens collected before the incident. Overwhelmed by the alien forces, the HECU Marines pull out of Black Mesa and begin airstrikes. Scaling cliffs, navigating destroyed buildings, and traversing through underground water channels, Gordon arrives at the Lambda Complex, where scientists learn that the portal is being forced open on the other side by an immensely powerful entity. They have developed teleportation technology that allows Gordon to travel to Zen, where he is tasked to stop the entity. In Zen, Gordon encounters the remains of researchers who ventured there before him and defeats the Gonarch, a huge egg-laying headcrab. At a factory creating alien soldiers, he enters a portal that sends him to the vast cave. There, Gordon confronts the Nylon, the entity maintaining the rift, and destroys it. Gordon is summoned by the mysterious G-Man, who has been watching his progress in Black Mesa and praises him. The G-Man explains his employers wish to employ Mr. Gordon. If Gordon refuses, he has teleported to an area full of alien soldiers to be killed immediately. If Gordon accepts, the G-Man congratulates him and places him into stasis to await his next assignment. Ooh. And this ending of this, this game, this story ending, this gameplay ending, I would say it's controversial, but the last boss is basically a giant baby. And people were just kind of like, mm, mm, yeah, sure. Yeah. There are certain, and this is around that time too, where the video game started to be more realistic. And so people did start having that ethical debate, I guess, that dilemma of just, are video games too realistic? Are they going to leave bad imprints on kids? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it goes. The story itself, obviously, isn't anything that you haven't heard in most of sci-fi before. I think that that's fine. There might be people out there who who play this game now or hear this story for the first time and are like, well, yeah, they've just ripped off a bunch of other, you know, different things. If you look at the enemies, they look a lot like the Flood from Halo, and it's like, uh, well, Halo might have ripped off that, but then there's also a lot of creatures just like that in tons of sci-fi films, you know, from way before this game even came out. So the genre is always kind of borrowing on itself. Yeah, and it kind of has like its own manual almost because, spoiler alert, Halos were not created for Halo. That's always been a sci-fi element as like a, a, a Stargate or a gateway to another realm. The way that they use Halos is a little different in the game itself, obviously, but that was not anything new. That's That's been a sci-fi element for a long time. So yeah, I make jest about Resident Evil 2 and, and a couple other games or movies and stuff in there. But that's just how sci-fi works. Overall, the story is done excellently for being in a kind of small contained realm that doesn't expand out. And it's only told over a small period of time, basically. And I thought it was done so well. Such a cool way to do it. And it led us on to even more Half-Life. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So two expansion packs by outside developer Gearbox Software have been released for the PC version. There's Half-Life Opposing Force, which came out in 1999, and Half-Life Blue Shift, which came out in 2001. The former returns the player to Black Mesa during the events of Half-Life's storyline, but this time from the perspective of Adrian Shepard, one of the Marines in the Hazardous Environment Combat Unit sent to cover up evidence of the incident. It introduced several new weapons, new non-player characters, both friendly and hostile, and new previously unseen areas of the facility. Blue Shift returns the player to Half-Life's Black Mesa timeline once more, this time as Barney Calhoun, one of the facility's security guards. The expansion was initially developed as a bonus mission for the canceled Dreamcast version. Blue Shift came with the high-definition pack, which gave the player the option to update the look of Half-Life, Opposing Force, and the new Blue Shift content. Decay was another expansion by Gearbox, released only as an extra with the PlayStation 2 version of Half-Life. The add-on featured cooperative gameplay in which two players could solve puzzles or fight against the many foes in the Half-Life universe. And in 2000, a compilation pack, Half-Life Platinum Pack, was released, including, with their respective manuals, Half-Life, Counter-Strike, Team Fortress Classic, Half-Life Opposing Force. In 2002, the pack was re-released under the new titles, Half-Life Platinum Collection and Half-Life Generation. These new iterations also included the Half-Life Blue Shift expansion pack, though registered on Steam, Day of Defeat, as well as Ricochet and Deathmatch Classic were also included. In 2005, Half-Life 1 Anthology was released containing Steam-only versions of the following games on a single disc, Half-Life, Half-Life Opposing Force, Blue Shift, and Team Fortress Classic. And yeah, a lot of those games on there were included a bit of times, but a lot of it was those mods. So, you know, talking about Day of Defeat, and then also having Ricochet and Deathmatch Classic, which were Half-Life things that were just these extra multiplayer bits added on there. It's cool to see they kept improving the game and the things you got with it years and years beyond the initial release. Now, we also had some remakes. To experience firsthand the processes mod makers would have to go through with the new Source engine, Valve ported Half-Life, dubbed Half-Life Source, and Counter-Strike to their new Source engine. Half-Life Source is a straight port, lacking any new content or the Blue Shift high-definition pack. However, it does take advantage of vertex and pixel shaders for more realistic water effects, as well as Half-Life 2's realistic physics engine. They also added several other features from Half-Life 2, including improved dynamic light maps, vertex maps, ragdolls, and a shadow map system with cleaner, higher resolution, specular texture, and normal maps, as well as utilization of the render to texture soft shadows found in Half-Life 2's source engine, along with the 3D skybox replacements for those bitmap skies. All in all to say, it made the game prettier and run better. The Half-Life port possesses many of the source engine's graphical strengths as well as control weaknesses that have been noted in the source engine. Later updates added a field of view option, support for OS X and Linux, 
an optional high-definition texture pack, among other improvements. Half-Life Source is available with special editions of Half-Life 2 or separately on Steam. Half-Life Deathmatch Source, the multiplayer portion of the original game, uh, got its release a little bit later in July of 2005. So again, they're just kind of going back and wanting to be like, okay, let's improve that first product we did. We have better ways of doing it, a new engine, slap it on there, make it better. Half-Life Source had been criticized for not fully using many of the features of the Source engine found in Half-Life 2, as it still uses textures and models from the original game. In response to this, a third-party mod remake called Black Mesa was developed with Valve's approval. Black Mesa, a fan-made remake of Half-Life, utilizing the Source engine, began development in 2005 and was released as a free download on September 14, 2012, lacking only the final Zen chapter. The Zen portion was held back until December 2019 as the project team wanted to revamp this to try and address how the original Zen was poorly received compared to the rest of the game. The free 2007 Source SDK base is needed to run the game. Black Mesa is also distributed via Steam. The remake was among the first 10 games whose release on the platform was approved using Valve's crowd voting service, Steam Greenlight. A separate effort, Project Lambda is attempting to recreate Half-Life in the Unreal Engine, allowing the game to support more advanced graphic features. Which would be pretty wild. Um, you know, using Unreal to do a lot of this uh, changes up a bit. Now, let's talk about just a couple. We're going to dive into just a few of the mods that became full games and a bit of the reasoning on it. Let's first start with Counter-Strike. Counter-Strike began as a mod of Half-Life's engine Gold Source. Min Lee, the mod's co-creator, had started his last semester at university and wanted to do something in game development to help give him better job prospects. Throughout university, Lee had worked on mods with the Quake engine and, on looking for this latest project, wanted to try something new and opted for Gold Source. At the onset, Valve had not yet released the software development kit or that SDK, for Gold Source, but affirmed it would be available in a few months, allowing Lee to work on the character models in the interim. Once the Gold Source SDK was available, Lee estimated it took him about a month and a half to complete the programming and integrate his models for Beta 1 of Counter-Strike. To assist, Lee had help from Jess Cliff, who managed the game's website and community and had contacts within the level map-making community to help build some of the levels for his game. The theme of counter-terrorists was inspired by Lee's own interest in guns in the military and from games such as Rainbow Six and Spec Ops. Lee and Cliff continued to release betas on a frequent basis for feedback. The initial few betas, released starting in June 1999, had limited audiences, but by the fifth one, interest in the project dramatically grew. The interest in the game drew numerous players to the website, which helped Lee and Cliff to make revenue from ads hosted on such sites. Around 2000, at the time of Beta 5's release, the two were approached by Valve, offering to buy the Counter-Strike IP and offering both jobs to continue its development. Both accepted the offer, and by September 2000, Valve released the first non-Beta version of the game. I'm glad that they decided to do it that way since they started their company the way that they did, you know? Mm -hmm. They obviously had enough power at this point to be like, hey, shut this down. This is our stuff. Yeah. But, you know, making sure to not be totally hypocritical and saying like, hey, we want to bring this on because we just think it's great. I think that just kind of shows where Valve's headspace is at. 
And I think thus far, they've done that for every title. You know, we talked about it in Portal, that they basically bought this design and brought everyone on from a college team. Same thing that they did here. You know, it's smart. Like, hey, come work for us. Finish your project. Here's money and support. Like, you've already got, like, what you, needs, what you need to do to, like, make this. Let's just give you the next push to it. And Counter-Strike, as many, many of you have known, it's blown up. It free, Halo, in a sense, you know, formed a bit of the first esports leagues. But Counter-Strike's right there with them. And it's still blowing up today. I mean, you've got Counter-Strike Source. You've got Counter-Strike Global Offensive. There's a couple other ones that are out there. But it's a game that's been a staple. And if you've played any Valorant, you've played Counter-Strike. You know, it's, it's built on that same realm of it with some tweaks and changes for, you know, updates. But it's there. It's still around. And it's amazing that this fan-made random kind of mod from the Source engine can do it. So they also had Team Fortress Classic. It was actually originally a mod for Quake and then later for Quake World, developed by TF Software. Its developers were working on a follow-up standalone version that they planned to call Team Fortress 2 when the team was hired by Valve to write a port of Team Fortress as a mod for Valve's game Half-Life. After several delays from the original release date of March 26, 1999, the mod was released on April 7, 1999. On June 9th, 2000, Team Fortress version 1.5 was released as part of Half-Life's 1.1 update. It was the first standalone version of Team Fortress, and the update added new sounds and weapons, enhanced graphics, new models for classes and weapons, new maps from popular map makers, an updated user interface that makes finding and joining games easy and intuitive, and a new in-game command menu interface. It also included the networking code for Valve's then-upcoming Team Fortress 2. There were three new maps with the update, Dust Bowl, Warpath, and Epicenter. Additionally, the new command menu interface was an in-game menu that allowed players to execute commands to change teams, call for a medic, and change classes while in a match. Valve significantly updated the game over time, tweaking the game's networking code and adding new maps and game modes. In 2003, Team Fortress Classic was released as a standalone game on Valve's Steam system. Versions of the game for OS X and Linux were released in 2013. Again, you know, not originally first developed for them, as is the way, apparently, but ported it over, and then TF2 or Team Fortress 2 is kind of the standard, as most of the 2s are nowadays for, <laughs> for anything Valve does. Uh, but, I mean, it spawned everything else. Look at Overwatch. Look at those are the games that have taken exactly what Team Fortress created in this, you know, usually 6v6, kind of have some smaller teams and some stuff, but usually a control point, pushing a cart, deathmatch, things like that. It's inspired so much. And for it to just be kind of this fun game that they were modding with Quake, eventually brought over to the Half-Life and the Gold Source engine, it's amazing to see where it's come about. And like I said, there's other ones that Valve has done, like Day of Defeat, uh, that... You can still buy on Steam, by the way. You can buy all these on Steam. Usually, whenever Valve has a uh, sale on something, you can get like the whole pack for like eight bucks of like all their old school classic games to be able to play through all of it. Uh, let's talk about real quick just some cut material or things that didn't make it into this one. They really didn't make it into the universe at all at times. But let's start with Hostile Takeover. This is a planned expansion that was going to have a junior G Man teaming up with characters from Team Fortress. This is going to be done by Vince Impala and his team at 2015 Games. 
And unfortunately, there were rumors back and forth on who didn't like who, what didn't work with what, and it didn't come together. I think it would be kind of a weird game having like the goofiness of Team Fortress characters in there and working this stuff out. So I'm kind of glad it didn't show itself. But one that does pain me <laughs> is pain skins. And this would have been uh, a variation of <laughs> claps all around, baby. This would have been a variation on uh, character models or character skins where like, let's say you shot someone on the leg. It would update that, you know, that bullet hole or that wound, which would be a new character skin. So the skin would update showing these different things instead of just being like what a lot of games had, which is just like if they've been hurt a lot, they just have like a hurt skin. And this would have been like more of a very precise one, but would have involved so many skins for it and just really not having that much time to do it. Um, and then we also had the ability to possibly fly a helicopter. And Newell said these controls were just as good as a simulator, but it just didn't work. And last, there was a lot of alien species cut from the game. Being a flock, archer, chum toad, floater, kingpin, Mr. Friendly, snapbug, sphere, and stuck a bat. So did we lose anything with all that? Yes, Mr. Fear would have been my best friend. You know, that's a sad day. But overall, I think the game without these things performed did just you say perfectly. Mr. Fear? You mean Mr. Friendly? Oh, I put... Yeah, yeah, Mr. Friendly. I was mixing Mr. Sphere and Mr. Friendly together, <laughs> but Mr. Fear. That's the new alien I want now. Thank you. <laughs> so within Half-Life, we had a multiplayer. Obviously, there was a deathmatch mode and a team deathmatch mode, and it supports up to 32 players. The players are given the ability to customize the appearance of their characters and can change their character model and its skin color from the options. The player can also select a spray paint image from a list or import a custom image and apply it to any surface in a level. Some of the weapons have a different behavior in the multiplayer. Half-Life and other Gold Source-based games used World Opponent Network, an online gaming service created by Sierra until it was shut down on July 31, 2004 and replaced with Steam. The multiplayer portion of Half-Life was included in the retail version of Counter-Strike as a mod. It was later ported to the Source engine and released as a standalone game under the title Half-Life Deathmatch Source which is barely functional and has many game-breaking bugs. The maps were updated for this version. Valve originally intended to include several multiplayer modes in Half-Life. One concept they initially announced was a mode featuring aliens against humans. The player would have been able to select a Zen creature from the single-player game as their character, each class possessing its own unique strengths and weaknesses. Gearbox also had a similar concept in mind for the multiplayer component of Opposing Force, planning to have a Capture the Flag game mode featuring aliens battling the HECU soldiers. This concept was dropped early in development so they could focus on the single-player portion of the game. According to Randy Pitchford, it didn't make sense to invest time into it as between Team Fortress Classic and other existing multiplayer modifications, the multiplayer aspect of Half-Life was well covered. Yeah, this was something I know a lot of people didn't really play. You know, it was kind of cool to play as Gordon or a couple other characters that are with it and, you know, use some of those weapons. But it was never built for that. It was always built as a single player story game. And I know they were trying to get like the other like shoot 'em ups to kind of see that, oh, we have multiplayer too, but it was okay. Level designer Dario Casali stated that the map boot camp was originally designed for a multiplayer game mode called Loot, which was ultimately cut from the game. 
The mode required a large map with varied areas to fight in and explore. Each round began with teams of two people, each who shared items and damage, and they had to hunt around the level for a bag of loot as well as weapons. Players could only carry one weapon at a time, and when the loot is found, the players had to bring it back to the flagpole area to win the round, so kind of like a single capture the flag. Dead players had to wait for the next round to spawn in again so that one life, one kill. Since the developers didn't have enough time to code additional multiplayer game modes, the level was converted to just a regular deathmatch level. There was also going to be a cooperative mode that was planned to use its own separate set of individual maps. These maps were to be larger than the regular maps used for single-player mode, with the developers wanting co-op to feel distinct with self-contained scenarios. This map was eventually cut due to time constraints, and the map Subtransit was possibly meant to be used as a co-op mode level. There are navigation nodes scattered around the map, likely used by the soldiers seen in the early screenshots, and cooperative-specific starting points for players, info underscore player underscore co-op, are also present. So in the coding, we do see a lot of stuff that hints towards that being co-op, unfortunately never coming to fruition. In the standard deathmatch mode, there was to be a multiplayer map with a table that could be used to call in airstrikes on a marked area on the map, a concept similar to the tactical map featured in the single-player mode. There was also a King of the Hill type of map where the players had to fight each other to reach the top of the hill and press a button to blast everyone else in the map. The same concept is used in the map Crossfire. Originally, Half-Life was slated to only include a male, Gordon Freeman, and female, Gina, player model. However, it was planned for players to be able to import a scanned photo of their own faces to apply to these models. It was also mentioned that the crossbow could fire arrows with the player's name written on them, and these arrows would pierce and stick in enemy players and remain in corpses. This was later removed as it was too difficult to read the names on the arrows, deeming the feature pointless. But I want it. I want people to know that if they squat down, put a magnifying glass to the arrow, that was mine. (laughs) It was me. Let them know it was me. (laughs) Let them know as you see your corpse, that was mine arrow. That pierced thine heart. Can you imagine the importing a scanned photo technology in this game? Like, it's still not great to this day. You can do this in sports games like NBA 2K. You could do it in FIFA. You could do it in a lot of those sports games through an online website before you could even do it with your phone. And they're oh, still Oh, awful. yeah. Please go look at the Rainbow Six Vegas scans. Newer-ish game, but you could scan your face in. It is just nightmare fuel. So when we talk about bitmaps, scattering maps, things like that, that's things in like 3D development that are used to kind of put skins onto things, the best way to put it or put terrain or basically allow the character to do certain things. So when you have that bitmap across the head, it's supposed to like wrap with that photo, but it's not built to be that. So you just look terrified the entire time. (laughs) It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would like this. Those, I remember when it first, when I first did it, it was actually for FIFA and they couldn't, I couldn't get the skin hue right. So I was just like a Mm. ghost in the game. (laughs) Listen, they're here's, here's this albino kid going score more goals than Pele. <laughs> well, another thing that they have been trying for a bit, even though it might not be face tech, is a movie. At one point, as with many popular gaming IPs, there were plans to make a movie based off of Half-Life. 
Sony and DreamWorks would meet with Valve on the premise of licensing out the Valve IP for a potential film. Steven Spielberg was even present during one of these meetings, doing the old Spielberg thing of like, maybe I'll do that. (laughs) The idea wouldn't last long, though. Valve didn't like how little money they would be making from the profit share, getting the timing of the production down, and disagreed with the production studio on the idea of potential sequels. Fede Alvarez, the director of Panic Attack, had also expressed that he wanted to direct a Half-Life movie, but assumed it would be pretty much impossible to do considering Spielberg couldn't even do it himself. As of now, J.J. Abrams and Valve are currently developing movies for Half-Life and Portal, another Valve IP. Abrams has stated that the movies are in early development, and Abrams and Newell have also expressed that they want to do games together. Finally, Guillermo del Toro has expressed that one of his dream jobs would be to direct a Half-Life movie, and Mark Laidlaw made a list of three directors he feels like should do a Half-Life movie, with del Toro on the list. Paul Verhoeven and Peter Jackson also made the list. Quentin Tarantino has also said he wants to make a Half-Life video game since it's one of, if not his favorite video game of all time. Newell has stated in the past that he wishes to see more Half-Life fan movies since he thinks fans of any franchise would potentially make a better movie than the Hollywood versions of them. I could agree with that in a way of like knowing so much of your source material and having played it and getting the vibe of it, like there's definitely stuff out there, whether it's in a machinima sense or whether it's actually in like a CG or a real life sense. You know, you've seen that with a lot of different IP products and especially studios hiring them out. You know, it's it's plausible. Do we need these movies? No. Will they be good? Probably not. But if they are good, cool. I, I mean, that's, that's as much as I think people think is like Half-Life movie. All right cool it's cool because you want to see these things come to life in different mediums and people love reliving especially now that it's been what you know 20 plus years since this game came out Mm -hmm. it's it would be cool to have like more futuristic interpretation on a game like this right sure that's the same reason why an unreal engine mod would be really cool for this game but just the amount of time that it takes to get through a campaign in the story, I've, I've always said this, is just so much longer than a movie, and I don't really feel confident that a movie could ever do that justice. I think maybe like a TV limited series or something could. Yeah. Movies, I think, are tough. My issue with it, too, is are we going to keep Gordon as a non-talking person? Or are we actually going to voice him in this? Or is he going to be a mute the whole time and just like a, you know, what is it going to be? Is it be like a hardcore Henry situation where it's like a first person GoPro perspective? You know, we already saw like the video game-esque-ness movie in that where it was all first person the whole time. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested. I'm weary and wary. I'm weary and wary. I'm quite weary. <laughs> I'm quite weary, but I'm also wary <laughs> on what this will be. We'll see. Well, let's talk about the music of the game. When it came to the soundtrack for Half-Life, it wasn't the biggest priority when creating the game because, again, it's the story, it's the action, it's the gameplay. Kelly Bailey was a developer on the project and knew that there needed to be music in the game. Luckily, Bailey had a recording studio at his place. Rather quickly in his spare time, he would start to write music and implement the game and record the game's sounds and just kind of figure out what vibed, what didn't, and what went together in this area because they didn't want it to be this grandiose, heavy, music-laden epic, but it had to have something to go along with it. 
This was the first soundtrack that Kelly Bailey had ever created for a video game, and it's relatively short. This was due to the fact that it was written on the side, and Valve, again, relied more on those noises and kind of haunting elements at times, because there was that spooky bit to it, kind of Lovecraftian stuff. So it was just kind of to set the tone. Several of the tracks are composed of licensed or stock samples. A notable example being the Methods of Mayhem Industrial Toolkit sample pack by Sony that was used by Kelly Bailey for most of the soundtrack. Due to the sample pack being publicly available, some of the same samples can often be heard in other games or even movies. An example is the drumbeat sample used in Hard Technology Rock, which can also be heard in the track Crush from the Command & Conquer Red Alert soundtrack. So again, this wasn't really a composer doing this. This was someone that did music on the side, knew what they were doing. But they weren't about to sit down after work and compose a whole soundtrack for it. They used what they could with a little bit of originalness, but mostly samples to build up their soundtrack. Which I think was the smart thing to do because this game, you're absolutely right, it has those haunting elements already kind of in it. You don't need some underlying score the entire time. You don't need to get pumped up. We don't need Steve Vai. We don't need like Breaking Benjamin. Just need like a little bit of something so that it doesn't feel totally silent and lifeless as you play through the story. Yeah. So it's it says a tone, but it's not a it's not a game that's carried by it, which I think is good. It complements it very well, especially hearing like those head crabs and hearing those other elements that are just like burned into your mm-hmm. mind, or like the healing or any of those other little elements that are in there that we also still hear in like I said, Gary's mod, where we get to use all of these things to build levels or build game modes and the creativity is off the wall there. I mean, many YouTubers, as I've said, have kind of made just a career on playing through Trouble in Terrorist Town, which is like a whodunit, very much like Among Us, and have done extremely well with it. So this game was released as a standard version. It was also released on the PS2. This version was ported by Gearbox. It came exclusively with the Decay expansion and co-op capabilities with the base campaign. There was Half-Life Source, which was released in 2004 to test out the engine for Half-Life 2. It's relatively the same game with just some updated graphics. There was the Platinum Edition. This version would contain the original Half-Life, Team Fortress Classic, Half-Life Opposing Force, Half-Life Counter-Strike, and some other mods. And lastly, Half-Life Uncensored, the German version of the game released after Germany took it off the censor list. The original German version of the game is very different from the regular version of the game. All humans are robots in this version, and instead of blood, they bleed oil. So just a little too violent for the Germans. Yeah, so the 90s and early 2000s, Germany was very critical, especially of gaming, and they released a censored version. But funny enough, Gabe Newell released a patch that Germans could download even during this time to be like, just plug this patch in, you can play the game. So he tried to work his way around it. Good dude, that Gaben. Hey, hey, send him an email. He'll answer. There were also some ports. Captivation Digital Laboratories and Gearbox Software developed a port of Half-Life for the Dreamcast with new character models and textures and an exclusive expansion, Blue Shift. Following the cancellations of several third-party Dreamcast games, Sierra canceled the port weeks before its scheduled release in June 2001, citing quote, changing marketing conditions. Basically, the Dreamcast is going to die. Yes, exactly. Blue Shift was ported to Windows instead. The Dreamcast port became the basis of the Half-Life port for PlayStation 2, which was released in late 2001 
This version is the one that added the competitive play and the co-op expansion in Half-Life Decay, and a late build of the Dreamcast version eventually leaked onto the internet. A version of Half-Life for Mac OS 9 ported by Logicware was announced but never released. On January 29, 2013, Valve released beta versions of ports for OS X and Linux, and Valve finalized them on February 14, 2013, just a little less than a month later, a couple weeks. Oh, and a little kiss-kiss Valentine's Day gift oh, for him. Look at that. Thanks, Gaben. Look at that. <laughs> thanks, Gabe. You're the best. So, you know, unfortunately, we didn't see this in the Dreamcast, which oof, I can go on a rant for for another 10 episodes. One of my favorite systems of all time. Gross. That just failed in every marketing condition ever. <laughs> but has some There's of the coolest titles that, with it. But... Listen. <laughs> listen here. It's the best. But anyway, let's talk about how did everyone react to this? What was the general reception to this game? When word was out that Half-Life was releasing around Thanksgiving weekend, pre-orders for the game were through the roof, much to Valve's surprise. They would also see a demand for the game in Europe, Asia, Australia, and South America. Originally, the game was budgeted to sell around 180,000 copies of the game total. It only took eight weeks to sell 500,000 copies. This would mean that it was one of the top 10 selling video games in 1998. The game would be the highest selling FPS for years until the release of Modern Warfare 3, and since then has gone on to sell over 10 million copies. The game has gone on to win over 50 Game of the Year awards, as we had said earlier. Publisher Sierra made a website, gameoftheyear.com, just to highlight these awards. Over 100 Half-Life fan websites would also start to appear shortly after its release. The Guardian gave Half-Life the title of the most important shooter ever made, along with several other critics labeling Half-Life as the best shooter ever made at the time. GameSpot has named it one of the greatest, if not the greatest game of all tickety-tock time. And a year after the release of the game, fans would come together for ModFest, an event sponsored by Valve and Sierra to showcase fans' dedication to Half-Life by creating their own games with it. Again. A very smart thing by Valve, saying, look at these games you guys are creating. Anyway, here's a paycheck. Come work for me. Half-Life saw support from independent game developers due in no small part to support and encouragement from Valve. Worldcraft, the level design tool used during the game's development, was included with the game's software. Printed materials accompanying the game indicated Worldcraft's eventual release as a retail product, but those plans never materialized. Valve also released a software development kit enabling developers to modify the game and create mods. Both tools were significantly updated with the release of the version 1.1.00 patch, and supporting tools including texture editors, model editors, and level editors such as the multiple engine editor Quark were either created or updated to work with Half-Life. The Half-Life software development kit served as the development base for many multiplayer mods, including the Valve-developed Team Fortress Classic and Deathmatch Classic, a remake of Quake's multiplayer deathmatch mode in the Gold Source engine. Other mods, such as Counter-Strike and Day of Defeat, began life as the work of independent developers, self-term modders, who later received aid from Valve. Other multiplayer modes include Action Half-Life, Firearms, Science and Industry, The Specialists, Pirates, Vikings and Knights, Natural Selection, and Sven Co-op. Numerous single-player mods have also been created. Notable examples include USS Darkstar, 
which is in 1999, a futuristic action adventure on board a zoological research spaceship. They Hunger, which was released in like 2001, which is a survival horror total conversion trilogy involving zombies. Pokey 646, which was a follow-up to the original Half-Life story with improved graphics, and someplace else, which was released in 02, which is a side story to the OG Half-Life. In 2003, Valve's network was infiltrated by hackers. Among the files that were stolen included an unreleased Half-Life modification, Half-Life 3-Wave, a canceled remake of the mod 3-Wave Capture the Flag from Quake. The files were later found by independent reporter Tyler McVicker of Valve News Network, interesting, on a Vietnamese FTP server in February 2016 and were unofficially released to the public in September 2016. Now, some Half-Life modifications eventually landed on retail shelves, as we have talked about. Counter-Strike was the most successful, having been released in six different editions as a standalone product, as part of the Platinum Pack, an Xbox version, and as a single-player spin-off titled Counter-Strike Condition Zero, as well as in two versions using the Source engine. Team Fortress Classic, Day of Defeat, Gunnam Chronicles, which was a futuristic Western movie-style total conversion with emphasis on its single-player mode, and Sven Co-op were also released with standalone. Half-Life is also the subject of the YouTube improv role-playing series Half-Life VR, But the AI is Self-Aware, and Freeman's Mind. Now, we've also seen, you know, obviously some sequels. We've seen Half-Life 2 with the many episodes of Half-Life 2. And most recently, the VR Half-Life Alex, which unfortunately, like I said, end of this episode, just wait for it. Unfortunately, people thought was going to kind of be Half-Life 3 at the time. So like another Half-Life. And then when it was released as like a VR exclusive, a lot of people were kind of down. But again, talking about how much Valve improves and just makes amazing content games. Half-Life Alex is so, you play as Alex, and it's so amazing, the advanced, just like gripping stuff. That sounds weird, but the gripping stuff in VR, like making it feel like you're actually grabbing something, knocking stuff over to make soldiers like come find you. Like there's just so many things that have been added in that. So like I said, Half-Life has lived on and also in games like Gary's Mod and the other various modes with that. Now, unfortunately, Newell has since admitted that it's hard to look back at Half-Life and not see a series of trade-offs made to complete the game. He'll never truly appreciate the game since he was so involved in the development, and he wants so much more. He's a bajillionaire now, but he'll want so much more. I have to wonder if that's why the Half-Life 3 stuff has been just, you know, what it is. Like, such a successful series. You look at like what Ubisoft did with Assassin's Creed and they're like, let's pump this bad boy out, Guitar Hero. Let's pump all these bad boys out. And, you know, if the attitude from Valve is like Half-Life was just, it, you know, it was very successful. It put us on the map, but we really hated it so much that we had to take the entire staff on a trip to Mexico afterwards. Like, you could see where it'd be hard to get excited about doing that again. Well, and I don't think that Valve knows what the number three is. Um, I think <laughs> they just think numbers end at two because we have not seen a third sequel for any Valve game, period. Half-Life Alex, kind of, if you want to consider it a three, but we've never seen a third. 
Well, We've the ended- internet says Gabe Newell is worth three point nine billion, so he knows what the number three is. You know somewhere what? In you his know what the re- you know what the reason with that is? He only thinks he's worth nine hundred million because that three doesn't exist in his mind. So that's why he's that's why he's not thinking about it. Yeah, that's I'm, fair. Look at that. Why am I a point nine? What is that? What is that? It's a blank space for me. It's just nine hundred million. <laughs> oh, so anyway. Gabe's rich. That's, that's what you should know about this episode. But that is our coverage of Half-Life. As always, hit me with it, Derek. Why did we choose this game? What do you think of it? I've mentioned it a few times already in the episode, and I mentioned it a lot about a lot of the games that we talk about. But as a first-person shooter, this game's unique ability to expand upon a genre that, I mean, they were absolutely right. They identified an issue within the FPS genre mm-hmm. that did exist. I played a lot of those classic games, you know, played Doom, played GoldenEye, played like Perfect Dark, played those like older, just shoot 'em up games. And even with a character like James Bond, where there's plenty of source material there, it still didn't really feel like a a story game to me. It's like you got a little mission brief. Um, you went in, you got through the level, and that was about it. And really why that game was so fun was for the multiplayer. So yep. for them to take that idea, pump it into a first-person shooter, make the story more compelling. I mean, I, people love the story of Half-Life. Mm-hmm. And I know that they were really highly anticipating Half-Life 2, and I know that people are really highly anticipating a Half-Life 3 release date to come at the end of this episode. But um, it's hard to think of another... I mean, just even within the first few minutes of this game where you're kind of on the rails, and it's a very long opening intro to this game where they're going through the credits and everything... But just that kind of ability, you you sort of know from the beginning that even though I'm sort of stuck in a cutscene, my ability to like run around and move around and stuff within these cutscenes, this is going to be a game that does things a little bit differently. So I am going to give this game, I think, an eight and a half out of ten. Nice. I like this game a lot. It's been a long time since I've played it, so it's kind of hard to remember the things that I didn't like about it. I have a lot of positive feelings on this game. I think it probably suffers a little bit from a lot of the same issues that just older shooters suffered from, but it also, I think, tried to fix that stuff as much as possible. I think, you know, adding a crowbar weapon um, rather than like a fist or whatever was a, a unique design and yeah, or a, or a knife or a baton or like something you'd have like this, like badass. Sure. Sure. Exactly. So it was just a little bit more of a unique choice. And I appreciated that very much. And I just appreciated overall the unique thinking on half-life and that's why it has the legacy that it does. I'll agree again, score, terrible score. doesn't make any sense, but I will agree on those points, especially going back to Goldeneye. That's a game based off a movie. It's following a whole story, and you still don't really get the story with it. That's what's so funny. It's like, I remember the cutscenes. I remember The World is Not Enough as well. Another fantastic N64 shooter game with it. Like, I actually the, prefer that one to GoldenEye. Even. Absolutely. What GoldenEye did perfectly, that did even better. What GoldenEye did bad, that did better. So it's amazing to see where this has come. And I recently just watched with GDQ, I watched a speedrun of Half-Life, which, by the way, is fantastic because not only is it a shooter, like we've said, 
it's so much more of a platformer, especially when it comes to um, the speedruns. And it's so cool to see how those uh, engines work, especially the Source Engine and the Gold Source Engine in like moving boxes and these other things and how people can exploit it in one way, but also just how realistic it makes a lot of these games. And I know I keep hearkening back to these modded games and to like Gary's mod, but these are what this entire studio is based on, is based on like young, hungry people either modding, creating things like Portal, you know, like, like these things and bringing them into the studio and bringing these IPs under it. And re- realistically, uh, Valve owning Steam, they don't have to work a day in their life except upkeep Steam. They do not have to make any games. Like they make so much money off that service alone. And yet we see Half-Life Alex come out. You know, we see these things that, sure, it was for the Valve Index, the VR set that Valve has, but they also didn't have to do it. Like, they could have still just let any VR game out there do this. So I respect Valve and Gabe Newell and the entire team immensely for these things and just for what they've brought. Um, so if I had to give it a rating, I would give it that sound when you're healing up. Um, divide that by how spooky headcrabs can be and the spooky zombies they're attached to. Um, add in um, Counter-Strike's the fun game that I suck at. Um, divide it by Team Fortress, um, which is not a game I enjoy, um, but I know people love it, and it's still alive and well today. Multiply that by the love in your heart you get when you see like a Gabe Newell smile. Like it just melts you a little bit. And knowing he's a Valentine's Day kind of man. Oh yeah. You, you Thanks, gotta Gaby. Gaby baby. That's out of, might I say, 14. Oh. oh. I like it. Little Febby 14 action. <laughs> Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Derek Baker, and assistance was provided by Richard Scanland. The intro and outro music for this episode was written and recorded by our friend Evan Barr. Absolutely. Love to see it and love to see over at our Patreon. Our patrons, again, are the people who support us immensely and keep this podcast going. We've added some new content, as we talked about before. We've got a Minecraft server. We've got a, mi- a modded Minecraft server actually going right now, um, where if you join at the $5 tier, you can get into that, as well as a D&D adventure, which will eventually lead to even more and more content that we just love to do outside of gaming. Um, and we want to thank a lot of those people today. And we'll start with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Mega, Nick Hyman, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Kroll, and Mr. Toot. So thank you all for the support. It helps us immensely. And uh, you're just some beautiful people. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review. If you like us, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And it helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you want to check us out and kind of the stuff we do outside of podcast stuff, you can check us out over at twitch.tv slash sourman70, that's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0, as well as Derek's channel over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247, that is the thebakerman24, with a little bit of seven to end that thing. Just don't put the little bit of, just put a seven, but you gotta add some flair to this, otherwise you guys aren't gonna listen to this. <laughs> You're not gonna listen to this part of it, this is the end. <laughs> They're going to stick around for that uh, 
I know. Half Life reveal. Yeah, you better because this is the torture of it's coming. Half Life <laughs> reveal is coming, baby. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram. We have a Twitter. Join our Discord. It's free to join. We're over there. We're having a good time. Hanging out. It's definitely where Alex and I get to interact with the community the most. Got some good people over there, and we'd love to see you join up. And a little special for our Discord folks, or people who haven't signed up yet. Um, if you are Halo fans, um, before December 8th, the launch date of Halo Infinite, if you reach level 10, which is just like chatting, communicating, yada yada with our Discord bot, you're entered to win a free copy of Halo Infinite. And of course, let us know what you like. Let us know what you're liking about the podcast or Half-Life in general. Did you play the OG? Are you just a Half-Life 2 man like me who rhymes? Because it's got the times. Let us know. Hit us up on those channels. Hit us up on Discord. Send those DMs. Love to hear from you. And as always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Eric Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Half-Life 3 release date. It'll be... So-